Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Teenagers have started using synthetic cannabis for recreational purposes. These products can be more dangerous than regular marijuana as they are man-made and mixed with other drugs to enhance the effects. The purpose of this month's CME offering was to find out the rates and risk factors for using synthetic marijuana among adolescents. The study included teenagers between 13 and 17 years of age. The average age of the study population was 16 years, and the average age of the teenagers when they first used synthetic marijuana was 13 years. White males between 16 and 17 years of age living in urban areas were more likely to use synthetic marijuana. These adolescents are also at an increased risk of having substance use disorder compared to those who do not use synthetic marijuana. Although synthetic marijuana is more dangerous than the regular form, teenagers use it because they believe it is legal to use and it provides a better high, is less expensive, and cannot be detected on drug tests. The authors urge physicians to educate teenagers regarding the adverse effects caused by using synthetic marijuana and screen when necessary. Recent research documents that some women experience PTSD in response to childbirth even after delivering a healthy baby at term. However, the notion that childbirth can trigger PTSD remains controversial and the formal symptom clusters are mostly unknown. This study examined an international sample of 685 women with the majority having delivered at term. Women in the sample were within six months postpartum and most around three months. The authors analyzed the symptom presentation of childbirth-related postpartum PTSD using a hierarchical cluster analysis to detect grouping of the postpartum PTSD symptoms. A perception of childbirth as highly stressful was strongly associated with postpartum PTSD symptom severity, with more stressful childbirth experiences being associated with more severe postpartum PTSD symptoms. Cluster modeling revealed four distinguished symptom groupings, reliving, avoidance, negative cognitions and mood, and hyperarousal and reactivity. Among women who experienced childbirth-related PTSD symptoms in the first postpartum months, symptom clusters appear to resemble those of PTSD symptoms following other potentially traumatic events. The findings put the possibility of developing a postpartum PTSD syndrome following at-term delivery of a healthy baby. Initial clinical trials have demonstrated promising results with the use of glabular injection of botulinum toxin type A, or BTA, in the treatment of depression. Evidence from several lines of research suggests that BTA's efficacy is mediated by the blockade of glabular muscles that mediate negative and sad emotions. However, due to the lack of a relationship between furrow lines and antidepressant response, the possibility of retrograde axonal transport of the toxin to result in antidepressant effects also remains a possibility. 
This review examines six primary clinical trials on the use of BTA in depression and critically appraised them using a five-point scoring system. The results showed that three of six studies were of fair quality, with scores of three or higher. The remaining three studies had scores of one. However, the findings from the reviewed studies need to be interpreted with caution due to several methodological limitations, such as an absence of an a priori hypothesis in five of six studies, limited sample sizes, and a large gender bias towards females, and most importantly, difficulty in ensuring subject blinding, which most likely resulted in significantly low placebo response rates across all six studies. Although the initial findings look promising, future studies will need to investigate not only the underlying mechanisms of BTA efficacy, but also the methodological limitations of the earlier studies to qualify use of this novel and well-tolerated strategy in the treatment of depression. In DSM-5, obsessive-compulsive related disorders are a group of common and often debilitating conditions including body dysmorphic disorder, hoarding disorder, hair-pulling disorder, and skin-picking disorder. However, there has been a long-standing debate on whether other conditions such as tick disorders and self-injurious behaviors should also be included. In many cases, repetitive behaviors can be life-threatening and do not respond to available treatments. There is also a controversy concerning whether electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is an effective treatment option. The authors of this article conducted a systematic review of ECT studies in obsessive-compulsive-related disorders. A total of 57 studies were identified, which included 69 ECT-treated patients with self-injurious behaviors, tick disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, and hair-pulling behaviors. The authors were unable to find clear evidence supporting the notion that ECT is an effective treatment option. The overall quality of the studies was weak. Most studies were case reports and case series, and there was no randomized controlled trials in the mix. Although ECT led to a positive treatment response in 73.4% of the published cases, the authors were unable to identify any major sociodemographic or clinical feature that predicted response. There were a greater number of cases resistant to antidepressants or antipsychotics and a trend toward greater publication of cases with self-injurious behaviors among ECT responders, but this finding could reflect some sort of publication bias. This work was supported by grants from the National Council for Scientific and Technological Development, the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, the David Winston Turner Endowment Fund, and the Dior Institute of Research and Education. Older adults with complicated illnesses often require specialized treatment in geriatric facilities when inpatient psychiatric hospitalization is needed. However, given the shortage of available beds in these facilities, patients often have long wait times in the emergency department. The objective of this study was to quantify that wait time. The authors examined records of patients aged 60 to 89 years who were seen in the emergency department and had a psychiatric consultation obtained. 
The total average time spent in the emergency department was calculated based on check-in time and time discharged. Average wait time for a psychiatric consultation and wait time to disposition was also calculated. The average age at time of visit was 66 years. A diagnosis of dementia or other neurocognitive disorder most commonly led to referral to geriatric psychiatry rather than other psychiatric services. The most common disposition recommendation was for discharge with outpatient follow-up, and the least common was for admission to the medical floor. The average time spent in the emergency department was over a day for patients with recommendation to be admitted and only 13 hours for those recommended for discharge. The findings of this study reiterate the need for more intensive research and improvements in the assessment and care of older adults with psychiatric needs in the emergency room setting. Many patients with chronic medical conditions are unable to adhere to recommended health behaviors, including physical activity, healthy eating, or medications, and such non-adherence is linked to disease progression and poor health outcomes. Existing in-person health behavior programs have important limitations. These programs are often intensive and time-consuming, are only attended by a minority of patients, and are not personalized to the specific needs of a given patient. Mobile health-based programs, which utilize wireless devices to deliver health-related information or interventions, may address limitations of existing in-person health programs. These protocols can deliver intervention content on demand wherever and whenever patients may need it providing needed flexibility and accessibility. Text message interventions may be particularly useful. Compared to downloading and interfacing with mobile apps, which can be more time-consuming and complex, text messaging interventions are exceedingly simple, deliver specific health messages based on patient input, provide a personalized experience, and promote health. This report describes the theory, programming, and development process for a machine learning-based adaptive once-daily text message intervention to promote psychological well-being and provide education and support around health behaviors. The platform allows patients to provide real-time feedback about each message, and the machine learning algorithm then delivers subsequent messages that are increasingly tailored to individuals' preferred message content. Read on to find out more about this promising intervention. This clinical demonstration project was supported by the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care Agents of Change grant project. Time for analysis and article preparation was funded by grants from the National Institutes of Health. Psychiatric complications of Cushing syndrome include irritability, anxiety, depressed mood, and cognitive impairment. Psychosis is a rare manifestation of Cushing syndrome, therefore the literature on the subject is limited and consists mainly of clinical case reports. The author of this brief report describes a case of Cushing disease misdiagnosed as schizophrenia-like psychosis for more than 10 years. Transphenodial adenoectomy resulted in improvement of psychiatric symptoms and cognitive ability. 
The authors urge clinicians to be mindful of psychiatric symptoms predating the diagnosis of Cushing syndrome, especially when these symptoms are persistent and treatment-resistant. Have you ever wondered if and how often an electrocardiogram should be obtained to monitor the QTC? Have you been unclear about which medical and metabolic conditions and medications can prolong the QTC? If you have, then this case of an elderly man with symptoms referable to multiple organ systems and treatment that involved several agents with QTC-prolonging side effects should prove helpful. The authors of this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital article use this case as a stimulus for discussion, review the risk-benefit analysis for medication administration and monitoring, and discuss the rationale for daily QTC monitoring. The rate of suicidal ideation in youth is around 20%. Suicide attempts have reached 9%, and completed suicides account for almost 10% of all deaths among adolescents and young adults around the world, making suicide the third leading single cause of death in this population. In fact, in several countries, the rate of suicide in children has gradually increased since the turn of our century. And the decreasing age at onset of self-harm and increasingly lethal methods indicate the need for targeted interventions in key transition stages for young people. For these reasons, we've just released our newest curated collection, Unmasking Suicide in Use. Dr. Philippe Corte, editor of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry's Focus on Suicide Special Section, further elaborates in his pointed introduction on the need for readers to learn more about the high risk of suicide among our young people. At nearly 200 pages, the collection contains 16 articles from the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders and the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry and costs only $75. To find the collection, go to psychiatrist.com and enter the keyword suicide. You can also find it on our journal homepages. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites. <laughs>